listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series Heroes and Underdogs, with a new weekly topic on one or more people who did great things for God. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Every single one of us has something in our past that threatens to haunt us and to taunt us all the rest of our lives if we're not careful. There's something in everyone's past, a mistake, a failure, a sin, or perhaps even a pattern of mistakes and failures and sins. So much so that if we're not careful, our past can overshadow the present and throw the future into jeopardy. So much so that you could encounter people, maybe you're married to somebody, maybe you have children, maybe you have parents, maybe you have a brother or a sister or a coworker, or somebody you know in church or in your neighborhood who has a past, something in their history, maybe a skeleton or two in their closet, or maybe a pattern of skeletons in their closet. They have so many closets, they don't know which one to turn to because they've got a past. And it can be that past, it can be that sin, it can be that mistake, it can be that failure, it can be that pattern of sin, that pattern of mistakes, that pattern of failures, where we can begin to talk ourselves out of God's best for us in the present and the bright future that God has for us on the horizon, even more than that, we can actually hinder somebody else's success if we hold their past over their present. If we keep reminding them of their failures and their mistakes and their shortfalls, before you know it, you can be somebody's worst enemy when you could instead be their champion. And we do that in our marriages unintentionally. We do that in our friendships unintentionally. We might not necessarily do it with the things that we say, but we can do it with the things we don't say, that we should say. We might not necessarily do it verbally, but we can do it non-verbally. When we look like we've been sucking on lemons because of the way somebody responds or because of the way that somebody is behaving. And before you know it, instead of being that encourager that God has called each and every one of us to be, some people have like a gift of encouragement, right? Some people love to encourage, they love to inspire, they love to motivate, and it seems like they do it naturally. Actually, it's supernaturally because God has wired them that way. But that doesn't mean that they are given an opportunity or that they are given a calling that's different from the rest of us. If you're not encouraging people, then you are discouraging people. And one of the characteristics of someone who's really walking with God really walking with God, not just playing church, not just resting on their laurels because they've been in church or grown up in a Christian home for any number of years. One of the characteristics of somebody who's really walking with God is that they become more and more of an encouragement and an encourager in the lives of the people around them, that as time passes, they get better and better and better at encouraging other people. But see, one of the things that hinders our ability to encourage other people is that we can get hung up on the past. 
We can get hung up on people's patterns of sin, their mistakes, their failures, the been there, done that situations in their lives. So we can hold people prisoner to their past, negatively affect their presence, and cast a dark shadow on their future. We can do that in the lives of our children. Parents, you can be one of the greatest encouragers in the life of your child or your children, or you can be one of the greatest discouragers in your child's or children's lives. And all for one thing and one thing only, you are hung up on the past. You are repeating the patterns that you experienced in your life and your childhood when you grew up things that your parents said, things that your parents didn't say that you wish that they said, things that your parents did and didn't do. You know, in my family, we went on one vacation my entire childhood. One vacation. And I don't even remember it except for the photographs. And there's not even very many photographs at that. And so you have to be intentional in your life because you have a past. You have a history. We're living in a day and an age where there are people who want to bring up other people's past. And the truth of the matter is, if we're really honest, come on now, be honest. When you hear these news stories about people talking about other people's past, their past behavior and their past shortfalls, I can see some of your smiles already. You can't necessarily see it on the live stream. Can't see what I see. I see smiles already. When you hear these news stories and you see these news stories about people bringing up the past in other people's lives, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be really honest. I'm going to be really transparent. But I say, oh my goodness, what if somebody wanted to bring up something from my past? And the fact of the matter is, we're all like a bunch of pots calling kettles black. We're all pointing our finger and our fingers at the sins and the shortfalls and the mistakes and the patterns and the imperfections of other people when the reality is, last time I looked, I'm a very imperfect person. I am a poor excuse as an example that others can follow. And the moment I begin to think that, yeah, (laughs) I wish that other people would be like me. (laughs) I just give evidence for the exact reason why people should not be like me. Every single one of us has something in our past, a sin, a mistake, a failure, a shortfall, a pattern of sin, pattern of mistakes, pattern of failures. We have something in our past that threatens to haunt us and to taunt us and to negatively affect the present to such a degree that it could jeopardize the future. And every single one of us has a tendency, if we're not careful, to be our own worst enemy. In Christ, you're a friend of God. In Christ, you are God's friend. But you can be if you hang out in your past, one of your own worst enemies. And you might live with somebody and know people who are friends of God as well through Jesus Christ and being rightly related to him. But you can be their own worst enemy and overshadow 
and be a detriment to everything that God wants to accomplish in their lives if you're not careful. God brought you a spouse for the purpose of not just satisfying you, but making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ and making your spouse like the Lord Jesus Christ as well. If God gave you a child or children, whether you wanted that child or that children or not, the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord himself. And you better adjust that attitude, make sure you have an attitude of gratitude to appreciate the children that God has given you because they're gifts, not a burden. They're blessings, not curses. Yeah, it's okay to get excited about the truth. And I don't know about you, you want me to be really honest with you or you want me to hold back a little bit? Should I hold the reins back a little bit? You want me to do that? I can get so busy in the treadmill of life, I can be so busy trying to fulfill the calling that God has placed on my life, unlike you. I can get so caught up in being faithful and being good as an employee for my employer that I can forget that my real employer is not simply the organization that writes my paycheck, it's God himself. And I can get so caught up, I can get so caught up in what I need to do that I can become a human doing and forget that God has called me as a human being to enjoy my wife, to bless my wife, to enjoy my children, to bless my children, to enjoy my elders, to bless my elders, to enjoy my deacons, bless my deacons, to enjoy my staff, or their God's staff here at the church, and to be a blessing to my staff. I can miss the mark repeatedly because I can forget why I'm here. I am here to be an encouragement and to love people as a reflection of God's love for people. And so many times, especially those of us who are type A's, any type A's out there? And if you're not a type A, you can have a deadline that can put a lot of pressure and a lot of stress on you, whether you're type A or type B or type Z, doesn't matter. The pressures and the worries of life and the to-do lists and the deadlines and all of the things that we are faced on a good day. Life is hard even when it goes well can tempt us to forget why we're really here. We are here to glorify God and to enjoy the process, to enjoy the process. And one of the biggest detriments to glorifying God and enjoying the process is getting hung up on your past. If you get hung up on your past, it's going to affect your present and it's going to be a dark negative shadow over your future. Until we deal with our pasts, until you deal with your past, you're going to struggle in the present and you're going to be your own worst enemy and you could be the worst enemy of somebody who is dearest and nearest to you. And God's word for you, God's word for me, for all of us each and every day is that we deal with the past so we can live in the present and shape the future. That's what God wants you to do. In fact, I'm holding back a little bit right now because I want to get a little bit loud and a little bit animated. Maybe I'll do that in just a moment because I'm a little bit excited. I feel like I'm uh, restraining a little bit of fire inside of me. I hope that this message, I hope that what God has already begun to say in you is so significant 
that it's burning in you right now that you will go back and you will listen to this message, what has already been said and what's about to be said multiple times this week and perhaps for an entire month because this is something that we all need to hear again and again and again and again in a world of negative naysayers, in a world of fault finders. We need solution seekers. We need people who are positive in a very negative day and an age. You need to be the most positive person in your marriage. You need to make it your ambition to be the most positive parent your children will ever see on the earth. You don't want somebody else to be setting the bar and blazing the trail as being the ultimate parent for their children while you're sitting on the sidelines. Now listen, you might struggle as a parent. You might say, doggone it, I did it again. I said it again. I wish I would stop. I'm repeating the same things. I'm becoming my father. I'm becoming my mother. Well, you know what? We don't just believe in life change through the preaching of God's word and mass. We believe in life change through this thing called life groups where you're living life with other people in a smaller environment and you're being transparent and vulnerable and honest with other people and you're saying, you know what? By myself, I suck. By myself, I am prone to spiral downward and go to places I should not go in my mind and in my heart. And I say things I shouldn't say. I'm repeating patterns. I'm repeating failures and mistakes. And I'm a dark cloud over people instead of being that silver lining. Life groups are significant for that, to help you rub shoulders with other people and be real. We have a counseling ministry on purpose. Why? Because counseling is part of our discipleship ministry, right? Our Sunday morning times, our large group gatherings are for the purpose of helping us interact with God's word. You better get ready in Judges chapter 16. Open your Bible to Judges chapter 16 as we get ready. But your fuses are going to get blown on Sundays. Your mind is going to get opened up. You're going to see things about your life. You're going to say, you know what? I need to delve deeper into this. My marriage is struggling and I need to sit down and I need to talk with a pastor I need to talk with a pastor and his wife, or I need to talk to a woman if you're a woman, right? Because we don't do men's pastor, you know, one pastor meeting with a woman. We don't do that one-on-one for integrity purposes. And especially today, you got to be careful about any, the best way to deal with an accusation is to prevent it from happening in the first place. We have women solid, godly women who will meet with you as a woman and help you and encourage you and come alongside of you, will help you as a couple to deal with the realization that I've got junk in the trunk, I've got a past, I've got patterns, I've got sin, I've got issues. You know, that's what it's all about. The body of Christ is a big, beautiful mess. It's a big, beautiful mess that God is tidying up. God is in the process of straightening out broken things. He's in the process of straightening out crooked things, fixing broken things. Some things we can't totally go back and fix, we can't repair, but you can make better of a bad situation through the Holy Spirit and through other people who care about you and love you and encourage you. I hope that when we leave today and you go out into the atrium, you don't just get into your car and just drive off. I hope you hang out in that atrium, which is in the process of being beautified on purpose so that by the end of the day on a Sunday at five or six o'clock, we have to say, get out of the building because the Spirit of God is still working from what he did in the auditorium, and you're out there in the auditorium. See, the building should have a theological purpose of community. 
The building should say, don't just come in and go out like a revolving door. Come in and hang out. Come in and let the Spirit of God. This is a Holy Spirit hospital. That's what church is. It is a Holy Spirit hospital where broken people can be healed. They can be fixed, where marriages can be mended, where relationships between fathers and sons and daughters and children and their mothers and their fathers can be mended and healed and the past can be overcome by what God is doing in your life now. That's what it's about. Yes, you've got a past. Yes, I've got a past. But the fact of the matter is, we've got to get over the past so that we can make the most of the present and impact the future. And nowhere do we see such an amazing example of this than what we find in the book of Judges in chapter 16. Look with me at Judges chapter 16, this amazing story of this judge named Samson, one of the judges who was the last of all the judges in Israel before the monarchy. And he ruled and he reigned in Israel for 20 years. Look what it says here in Judges chapter 16, verse one. Now, I'm gonna get a little animated here. I'm sorry, I can't contain it anymore. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her, meaning he had sex with her. A prostitute, are you kidding me? Now, if you go back and you read chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15, you get some of the backstory with Samson. Some of the backstory is this. His mother was barren. She could not bear children. And an angel of the Lord appears to her and says, listen, you're going to give birth to a child and you are to dedicate him before even conception. He's going to be a Nazarite. He can't drink wine, can't touch dead things, anything that's dead. And he can't cut his hair. That was the symbol, the outward symbol of dedication to the Lord. And we all know, if we know the story of Samson, he had very long hair because he was dedicated as a Nazarite. Wasn't his choice, wasn't his mother's choice, it was God's choice. And that becomes significant from the get-go. It's not that Samson chose the Lord, it's that the Lord chose Samson. It's never that you have chosen the Lord or that I have chosen the Lord or we have determined to make a great thing of our lives and get our lives together and make sure everything is straightened out. And then once I get everything straightened out, God can use me right? Is that what it's about? Is that what Christianity is about? Lord, I'm going to get my life together. And once I get my life together, a lot of people think that. Once I get my life together, then God will use me. No, that's not what it's about. It's not because you chose God. It's because God chose you. That's what it's about. He's dedicated to the Lord from before conception. And then he gets married. He marries a Philistine woman, which was a no-no in what Israel understood that they should do. You don't do that because you're not supposed to intermarry. But if you look at chapter 13, you'll see that his father did not know that it was the Lord's will because the Lord wanted to deal with the Philistines who were ruling over the nation of Israel. Now remember, it all goes back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. Haven't we been saying that? Haven't we been saying that? That whoever treats the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, God's people, descendants of Abraham nicely, God treats them nicely. And if you don't treat God's people nicely, then God judges you. He disciplines and the Philistines were now ruling and reigning over the nation of Israel, and that's not a good thing. So God had rolled up his sleeves, and it was God's plan to work through this marriage between 
Samson and this Philistine girl. But something happens that it's during this week-long wedding feast that he actually is so abrasive to his new wife. They haven't even got on the honeymoon yet. Haven't even necessarily consummated the marriage yet. He's so abrasive to his wife that he makes her cry and her father comes along and gives her because of Samson's rudeness, his crudeness, his abrasiveness, his insensitivity. We know that none of the men who are married in our fellowship are like that, right? Right? We know that. You're always sensitive to your wife because your wife is the most important, precious gift that God has given you, even more important than your work, even more important than your career success. We all know that, right? So we're always kind and gentle and loving and what are you saying yes for? I got a man sitting down here nodding his head and going like this. And his wife's sitting right there and she's stone-faced. Only kidding. Kind of. But his father-in-law takes her and gives her to the best man. Samson's best man gets his wife. This is during or right after the wedding celebration. How's that for getting off to a good start? And then he gets divorced. He divorces his wife. So he's already got the beginnings of some junk in the trunk, some past. Even that in itself, we would say, well, divorce. God can't use me once I'm divorced. That's the unpardonable sin, the unspoken unpardonable sin. Now, we might get remarried to somebody, or we might not get remarried to somebody. But we certainly can think that because that's a pretty big failure, that's like, you know, God can't overcome some sins. We can think that, right? There are certain sins in our human hierarchy. See how important the mind is? We can begin to think that because this is important to me, failure in my past, mistake in my past, ongoing consequences because of it, I can't enjoy the present. And God certainly can't use me to shape the future. You see, if you read Judges 13 and 14 and 15, you begin to understand that Samson had a problem with anger and conflict resolution. He didn't know how to actually resolve conflict in a healthy, admirable way. And yet he was called by God. He was anointed by God. God didn't ask him for his opinion on that matter. It was before he was even born. God didn't ask you for your opinion on the matter when he reached out to you and called you and saved you if you know Jesus as your Savior. And if you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, he's not asking you for your opinion. Hey, would you mind if I saved you? He's actually invading your space and saying, listen, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. I want to remove all of your sins and take care of your past, give you a good present and a super bright, spotless future in my presence. That's what God offers to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Samson had a problem with anger and conflict resolution. And he also had a problem with self-control and sexual purity because we see it right here in verse 1 of chapter 16. He goes out and he sleeps with a prostitute. It's kind of a big thing, all right? Now, divorce wasn't enough, and his problem with anger wasn't enough, and if his problem with unhealthy conflict resolution wasn't enough, surely sexual immorality, I mean, that's a biggie. If I have sexual immorality in my past, God can't use me in the present. Maybe that's why God doesn't really use me 
powerfully, significantly, because what? There's something bigger than this? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, come on now. If your sin is bigger than the cross, then we don't have any good news to preach. If your sin is so big that it's going to shackle the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the cross has no power. And God has no grace. He has no mercy. And we might as well stack up the chairs, sing a dirge, and go home. We all have hierarchical attitudes towards sin in our lives. And I find it so interesting that sexual sin gets so much of the headlines, maybe financial impropriety in an organization, you know, among a pastor or the elders or uh, directors of a ministry, that gets so much notoriety. But we don't really consider the significance of things like gossip or like slander or like undermining leadership, right? We live in a nation where it is sexy. It is super sexy to be defiant and to be rebellious and to disrespect leaders. I'm not just talking about those who are elected officials. I'm talking about even in the church. And listen, let me just say this to really drive it home, all right? Our rebellion against God is so pervasive and so powerful that we are rebellious against leaders who are put in positions of authority and we don't even realize it. We are completely clueless to the undercurrent of rebellion. It is systemic, it is culturally pervasive, and unfortunately, it has become culturally acceptable in our families with children being rebellious toward their parents. Listen, it's not always a difference of opinion. It can be a difference of lordship. Who is the Lord of your life? Who's the master? Who's in the driver's seat? Who are you trying to honor? And who are you in that journey actually honoring and respecting? It's huge. Rebellion is so pervasive in our society that we don't even realize when we're doing it. And we just think because we're Americans and America is about pluralism and about different ideas, out of many comes one, e pluribus unum, We think that it's all about sharing ideas, and after all, I'm just sharing my idea. No, you might not just be sharing your idea. You might have an issue with the lordship of God in your life. And I don't know if that's the case, but I do believe that our God is a loving God. He's a compassionate God. He's a revelatory God. He's a God who reveals truth to us. If you ask God, Lord, is there any area of my life where I have a rebellion streak in me that's not of the Holy Spirit? Would you reveal that to me? And you know what? If you're really sincere about that and you embrace this idea of living with humility in your life, God will reveal it to you. And then you get the opportunity to agree with him about what he already knows. That's what humility is, agreeing with God about what he already knows. And then adjusting your life and beginning to walk in a new direction, right? If anybody was a candidate for having junk in the trunk in the past, It was Samson. 
and he seems very thick-headed. He sleeps with a prostitute, verse two. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him at night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Samson also was not very good at making wise choices with the women in his life. He wasn't really good at learning lessons from his past, and so he really was not a good judge of character. He picks a woman named Delilah, and the rest, as they say, is history. And the lords of the Philistines, verse 5, came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him and humble him, meaning overtake him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Not a small treasure in that day or even today for that matter, but even more in this day. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson's not really such a, a sharp knife here. She reveals the whole strategy right up front. <laughs> hey, listen, I want to uh, be a train wreck in your life. And uh, sometimes men, women, you might have a relationship in your past where you knew it was a train wreck. You knew, do not pass go, do not collect $200, don't go there. Don't get involved with this person. The Holy Spirit is flashing red lights before you. Your conscience is telling you, don't do it. And you get together. You, as they say today, hook up. And that drives the connectivity, the connection even more together. It binds you together even more. And then it becomes a bad habit you can't quit. And you go downward and downward and downward and downward. Here, the woman is telling him, I want to destroy your life. I want to figure out how to tie you up. This is not a sadomasochistic situation. This is a situation where she wants to be a train wreck in his life. And she just, full disclosure, how do I ruin your life? And he starts to give her some information that is not true. He had a desire to kind of play this game, do this dance. He liked maybe the adrenaline rush of living on the edge. Look at verse 7. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Deliah said to Samson, look at this, this guy's a little bit thick. Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, enemies of Israel, enemy of Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. That's how strong this guy was. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Then he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web, 
and fasten it tight with the pin. Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. You think by this point, he would begin to understand. That was not a comfortable situation. She made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you? How can she say that she loved him? And by the way, if you're thinking about getting married, don't marry this kind of a woman, all right? Don't do it. She said, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. In other words, she nags him and nags him and nags him and nags him. I know that nobody here has married somebody who is adept at nagging. Book of Proverbs says a nagging wife is like a leaking faucet. And I have a friend of mine whose friend had a wife like that. And one day as she's in the middle of nagging him, you know what he began to do? He just said this, he did this. Now I don't recommend that you do this unless you want to be vexed to the point of death. But as she was nagging him, he just did this. He said, drip, 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 drip. I know some of you are tempted to go home and try that today. And I want you to know that I will be available for marriage counseling along with some of the other pastors as well. She nags him to the point of beating down his spirit where this person who was anointed by God, appointed before birth, gives in and he reveals the secret. Verse 17, he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. That's from Numbers chapter six, verses one through eight, the Nazarite vow, which is part of the long hair is involved in that. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and then I shall become weak and be like any other man. See, his power was not from the length of his hair. His power was from the size of his God. The hair was simply a symbol of him being dedicated and being fully devoted to the Lord. And by the way, there might not be such thing as a Nazarite vow today, but we are all to be given over to Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be fully devoted and fully dedicated to him. And by the way, it's not because you promised that God, I would be perfect and I'd be flawless from this point forward. That's not how you become a Christian. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not your pledge of perfection to God. It's your exception of a perfect God and the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about you getting your life together. It's about God getting your life together because you and I, we're imperfect and we need a perfect savior. Can I get a hallelujah for that and amen for that? When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Guard your heart above all else, for from it, the book of Proverbs says, flows the wellspring of life. As your heart goes, whatever you're devoted to, whatever you're dedicated to, that can be for your success or for your downfall. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. They are tasting victory. She made him sleep on her knees and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. She said, 
The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But some of the darkest words in all of scripture, he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head, some of the most encouraging words in scripture, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. God's power is being manifest in him. Yet again, we're getting some foreshadowing here. We're helping ourselves understand, God wants us to understand that we should not be flippant about his anointing in our lives. There can be consequences if we disobey. There can be discipline. And here, something significant happens in the life of Samson where his eyes are actually gouged out. He never gets new eyes again. Never again will he be able to see. Sin can have its consequences. Sin can cause and wreak destruction in our lives. This is true in Samson's life. You might have done something. I know that I've done things in my life where there are ongoing repercussions. We know that other people have done things, people we're close to, and they've done things that have repercussions not only for them, but also for us. Permanent outcomes because of things that we've done or things that other people have done in their past that affect us in the present and go with us for the rest of our lives. But, 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 look at the attitude of Samson. You see, it's such a learning opportunity for each and every one of us because some of us, the stuff that we've done in the past, it overshadows us to such an extent, it's like we're being held in bronze shackles. And we've, we've disqualified ourselves to just being spectators to everything that God wants to accomplish from this point forward in our lives. And I know that some of us are having an out-of-body experience because God just put his finger on your life. God just called you out in a loving way and he's saying to you, listen, are you holding yourself captive to your past when I have set you free? Are you holding yourself captive to your past when I can set you free? Are you holding somebody else captive to their past when God has set them free? You don't have a right to put yourself in prison. When God has set you free or wants to set you free, you don't have a right to keep somebody else in prison when God has set them free. Listen, if you're holding your spouse in prison because of something in the past, you're holding yourself and your whole family in prison. If you're holding your child in prison because of something they've done in their past, you're holding your whole relationship in prison. You're binding up that relationship in an unhealthy way. Listen, Samson is an amazing example that he's aware of his shortcomings, had a lot of time to contemplate his failures, a lot of time to contemplate his problem with anger, a lot of time to contemplate his issue with poor conflict resolution, a lot of time to contemplate how sexual immorality led to a decision that cost him to lose his vision. And in the same way, you might have done stuff in your past, done things in your past that is affecting your vision right here and now. It's overshadowing your ability to be used by God in the present. And 
to shape the future because if God has called you, you are called by God to influence your present and to shape the future, a future that would otherwise not be if it were not for the majority of you and God. You and God make the majority. That's it. That settles it. Move forward. Stop looking at the past. If you dwell on the past, it will affect your present and it will hinder the future. And Samson is a guy who now finally gets it right. He gets it right. And if he could do it, as stubborn and as thick-headed as he was, and he sure was, so we're just getting a glimpse of it right here, then you can do it too. You and I, we can learn a lesson from Samson and we can move forward. Look at this, verse 23. His hair has begun to grow back and months pass because his hair is now long. The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, not the God of Israel, not the living and true God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held them by the hand, let me feel, because he can't see them, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests. This is the temple of Dagon, the false god, the epicenter of Philistine worship. Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women just on the roof who looked on while Samson entertained. Would have been entertaining just to see the captive of their, their enemies who had done such damage to them be there on display. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Are you bracing yourself? And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And you might say to yourself, but doesn't that cruel for all those people to die? How can God be glorified? See, you have to understand the context that it is God's agenda and God's glory and God's story, not just Samson's story, certainly not Samson's glory. It's about God accomplishing his plan and his purpose where he's raising up the nation of Israel, the precursor to the establishment of the Lord Jesus Christ who would be born as a Jew into the world in fulfillment of scripture. And here what we're seeing is that in his death, at the end of his life, regardless of all this stuff in Samson's past, God is able to use him. Look with me at the book of Romans. The book of Romans, as we begin to wrap up here, Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It means that God's not going to change his mind once he calls you. If God has called you, it's not that you're 
pursuing God. It's not that I'm pursuing God. It's not that we get everything perfect in our lives. It's that God is perfect and he is perfecting our lives. And you might be holding yourself captive. You might be holding somebody else captive. What if I told you? What if I told you that you don't have to hold on to your past anymore in order to be used by God powerfully in the present? What if I told you that one of the most significant, important things you could do right now for somebody else that you've been holding captive is to let them go, set them free, stop holding their past over them. Yes, you've got stuff in your past. You do if you're honest with God. Yes, I do if I'm honest with God. Yes, everybody you encounter this side of eternity is going to have junk in the trunk, stuff in their past. Don't use that over them. Don't lord it over them. Don't hold it over them to hinder them in the present and prevent them from being used by God to shape the future. What if I told you you could set yourself free if you give God your past? What if I told you you could set somebody else free if you gave them over to God? My, you know what would happen? You'd be a hero as defined by the heroes that we see in the pages of scripture. The reason why Samson is a hero that we're learning from today is because he's a great example for us that you can't let the past affect your present and shape the future. Give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give it all to God. And God will use you. God will use other people. Set other people free. Let God help you walk in freedom. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.